Well, turn in your Bible to Psalm 119. Psalm 119. We have been going through this series on Psalm 119, and we are nearing the end of it. And once again this morning, we're going to hear from the psalmist about his love for God's law. We've heard it over and over, but my question for you this morning is, has it sunk in? Do you agree with what the psalmist has been saying about God's law? Has it made a difference in your life? As we've gone through this series, what we do is we've been tackling a couple of verses each week, four verses, eight verses, somewhere in there, talking about what those verses are saying, and there's lots of application that's kind of woven in with each of those verses. And then in the second half of the message, we're looking at a principle that we learn from Scripture about God's law, and then looking at a specific example from the Old Testament of God's law and how it still has relevance and validity for us today. So we're going to do that again this morning. We're going to look this morning at verses 165 to 168. And then next week we will tackle the final eight verses. And then after that we'll have one more message to kind of wrap up this series on Psalm 119. So if you're there with me in Psalm 119, follow along as I read starting in verse 165. Great peace have those who love your law. Nothing can make them stumble. I hope for your salvation, O Lord, and I do your commandments. My soul keeps your testimonies. I love them exceedingly. I keep your precepts and testimonies, for all my ways are before you. Well, verse 165, great peace have those who love your law. Nothing can make them stumble. What is peace? You kind of have to know what peace is to make sense of this verse. And uh, one of my favorite commentators that I've been reading on this psalm, Thomas Manton, a Puritan writer, gives three categories of peace that I think are helpful. He talks about external peace, internal peace, and eternal peace. So let me just talk about those for a minute. External peace is peace with others. So peace with, within our relationships or peace in a society. When you have peace with those around you, that's external peace. So in your society, whether that's in your home or in your community or in your nation, when a society honors God, that society is at peace. Even when a society doesn't honor God, you can still be at peace in the midst of it. And in our relationships, when we honor God, then there's peace when people honor God in the way that they relate to each other, God's design is best and we have peace in our relationships. And even, again, when you can't do that, when you're not at peace with someone, what does Scripture tell us? Well, Romans 12, 18, If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. So you make the effort to live at peace. And maybe you can't have peace with the person around you, but you can have peace with your conscience and peace with God that you've done your part to live peaceably with all. That's external peace. Internal peace comes from either justification or sanctification. Justification is when God declares us to be right in his sight. That doesn't happen because we've done something to earn it. It doesn't happen because we've been good enough. It happens when we look to Christ in faith for what he has done for us. So Romans 5.1 says, Since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Apart from that, we don't have peace with God. 
Because we're lawbreakers. We are sinners. And so God's judgment rests on us rightly. And so God's anger, his wrath rests on us. We're not at peace with God. But when we're justified by faith, when we look to what Christ has done for us, his death on the cross, paying the penalty for our sins, his righteousness given to us, that's the righteousness that we stand dressed in when God looks at us, if we have faith in Christ, then we're justified. We're declared righteous in his sight. And then we have peace with God. But peace can also come practically from sanctification. That's not to replace justification. But when you have justification, sanctification adds to your peace, so to speak. Here's how Isaiah says it, Isaiah 32, 17. The effect of righteousness will be peace. And the result of righteousness, quietness and trust forever. In other words, once you become a Christian, the more that you obey what God has said, the more that you live the way that God has designed, the more peace you'll find. Because peace is the fruit of righteousness. Which makes sense because we're also told in Galatians that peace is one of the fruit of the Spirit. So peace is the fruit of the Spirit. It's the fruit of righteousness. We have internal peace when we live the way that God tells us to live. So there's external, there's internal, and then there's also eternal peace. We know that as believers, we look forward to a day when there will be no more sorrow, no more tears, no more suffering. All the things that disrupt peace now, here in this life, will be gone. And so, great peace have those who love your law. Nothing can make them stumble. That's the effect, then, of loving God's law. Nothing can make them stumble. What kind of things make believers stumble? Well, anything that discourages us from obedience or distracts us from it or tempts us away from God. See, the one who loves God's law cares more about what God thinks than what man thinks. So he's not tempted away by the scorn or ridicule of people around him. Thomas Manton gives an example. It's probably maybe a little bit politically incorrect in our day, but I think it's still a helpful one. He says, if there was a crowd of cripples who were mocking you because you walked straight, would that bother you? Well, no, they're not the standard, right? And the same thing is true when you walk in righteousness, when you walk straight according to God's law, should you be bothered when a world of crooked walking people mock and ridicule? Of course not. They're not the standard. God's law is the standard. And so if we're walking in righteousness, we shouldn't be bothered. We shouldn't be drawn away by those kinds of voices. Nothing can make you stumble when you love God's law. And so Hebrews 11 tells us that, for example, Moses considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt. He wasn't tempted by those things. Even if following Christ was going to bring reproach, he was resolved to do it. Great peace have those who love your law. Nothing can make them stumble. Then verse 166, I hope for your salvation, O Lord, and I do your commandments. What does hope do for the Christian? 
Well, hope of reward actually motivates us to obey. Philippians 3.14 says, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. We do this with our children, right? When they're young, especially, you give them the promise of a reward to help steer them towards the obedience that you desire from them. And the same thing's actually true for us as adults. God promises reward for those who follow God's law. Hope of eternal life actually also helps us to set our hearts, set our affections on the right things. You can't hope for something without spending time thinking about it. And thinking about heavenly things puts our heart in the right place. If you can think back maybe to before you got married, for some of us that's getting to be a long time, but can you think back to what it was like before you got married and the hopes that you had at that point as you look to the future? Your mind is constantly going to that. You're thinking about it. Maybe for the teens that are in here, if you're involved in sports, if you have the kind of passion for sports, I know myself, in high school, it was basketball, and my mind was always on the next game, and that's what I was thinking about. Maybe for the youngest, it's what you hope to get for Christmas this year, and you have you, the thing that you're just constantly, your mind is wandering to that thing, and you're thinking about it, right? You can't hope for something without thinking about it. And here, I hope for your salvation. Our minds as believers should be constantly wandering to what God has done for us in Christ, that hope of salvation. And hope puts our heart at rest. It settles our fears and anxieties so that we can serve God with a cheerful heart as he commands. Even in afflictions, believers are at peace because you're built on the cornerstone that is Jesus Christ. Jesus tells that story about the, the two men who build a house. One builds it on sand and one builds it on a rock. And when the storms come, what happens? Well, the one that's built on sand collapses, but the one that's built on the rock stands. Same is true for us. We're built on the rock that is Christ. And if that's the case, then we have hope for the future. And so hope puts our heart at rest. One of the questions that maybe comes up as you read this verse, I hope for your salvation, O Lord, and I do your commandments, is what's the relationship between salvation and doing God's commandments? Well, a solid hope of salvation is always joined with carefulness to keep God's commandments. Charles Spurgeon comments on this. He says, in times of trouble, there are two things to be done. The first is to hope in God, and the second is to do that which is right. And the reality is, the only people in the world who can actually keep God's laws from the heart are those who have the hope of salvation. Now we have to be very clear that doing God's commandments does not earn us salvation. That's not how you get salvation. But... When you receive the gift of salvation in Christ, the right response, the natural response, is to obey what God has said. The point of the law is, in part, to reveal to us what God wants us to do. But you can never actually please God just by doing the works of the law if your heart is not in it. And so when you get to the New Testament, you read about the idea of obedience that comes, that's empowered by the Spirit of God. 
not just by the threat of the law. It's real obedience. Spurgeon, again, is helpful here. He says, those who place least reliance upon good works are very frequently those who have the most of them. When you're not relying on good works, because you have the security that comes from the promise of salvation through faith in Christ, then you're freed up to good works. Because you're not living with the threat of the law. The penalty has been taken away. And now you live in freedom. And you can respond in gratitude to what God has done. And a natural response of gratitude is to do what's pleasing to God. Verse 167 then says, My soul keeps your testimonies. I love them exceedingly. Here we see that serving God goes beyond just doing the actions with your body, but it actually involves your soul. God owns both your body and your soul. 1 Corinthians 6, you're not your own, you were bought with a price. Thomas Manton, again, is helpful here. He gives the illustration. He says, giving your body, but not your soul, in other words, doing the works of the law, but not with your heart, is like giving someone a shell without the kernel. It's like giving someone a peanut shell without the peanut, or corn husks without the corn. Your body, going through the motions of obedience, but without the heart, you're giving God the shell but not the heart. So Paul says in Romans 6, he says, thanks be to God that you who once were slaves of sin have become obedient, now catch this, obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. The standard hasn't changed. The law hasn't changed. But now you're obedient to it, not because of the threat of penalty, but you're obedient from the heart. It's a heart that's been changed by God. And so Thomas Manton says, it's a stupid religion that consists in outward actions. Judas was externally a disciple, but Satan entered into his heart. Ananias joined himself to the people of God, but Satan filled his heart. Simon Magus was baptized, but his heart was not right with God. And so it's important that God has our heart as well as our actions. So it's not just obeying, but it's also loving God's laws. And that's what we see the psalmist saying. In this psalm, David has told us over and over and over that he loves God's law. Paul says the same thing. Romans 7, I delight in the law of God in my inner being. And Jesus says, you are my friends if you do what I command you. That's John 15. Friends have things in common, shared affections, things that you both agree on and that you enjoy together. And we should love what Jesus loves. Verse 168 of Psalm 119 here says, I keep your precepts and testimonies for all my ways are before you. All my ways are before you. We're always seen by God, but many people forget that. Or we imagine that we can do things that God won't see. We're on the level at that point of a toddler playing peekaboo, right? Like when, when your eyes are covered, uh, it's like you're not there or something like that. But the idea here is God is the judge and the jury and the witnesses. He witnesses what we do. So we hear things in scripture like Jesus saying to the churches, I know your works. Proverbs 15, 3, the eyes of the Lord are in every place keeping watch on the evil and the good. And that's not, that, that's, the point of that is not to, to try to get us to think of God as 
you know, the, the ogre in the sky who's always watching to catch you in something wrong. Because if you're a believer, then your sins are already taken care of. But God's sight of you is his compassionate care for you. But if you're not in Christ, then he is seeing every single thing that you do. And there will come a day when you will account for all of those things. We as believers need to learn, though, to see God by faith. We don't see him physically because God is a spirit, doesn't have a body like a man. So Hebrews 11, as it talks about faith, verse 1 says, Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. It goes on later, verse 27, to say, By faith Moses left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. We should live as people who can see, by the eyes of faith, God who is invisible. We live with him always with us. We are always before him, as the psalmist says here. Hebrews 4.13, No creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. You know, we're often mindful of human authorities and whether or not they see us, whether that's the child who's hiding from their parents. I can remember finding one of our kids, and since we're right around the time of Halloween, this will be a, an important lesson for all the parents. Shortly after Halloween, I think it was, we found one of our kids hiding in the closet eating candy. Right? And they thought they could not be seen by us if they were in the closet. They failed to realize maybe there was a trail of wrappers or something. I don't remember exactly how it was that we came across them. But children have that idea. Like if I can just get myself out of the eyes of the authorities, whether that's my parents or whoever, then I can do what I want. We do the same thing, right? You're driving down the highway and you see the cop in the median. Your behavior changes. We do certain things when the authorities are around and other things when they're not around. But do we treat God's law with the same seriousness or do we think that somehow it just doesn't matter? Do we think that somehow we're fooling God? It's silly for us to think that way. But the psalmist here says, I keep your precepts and testimonies for all my ways are before you. Well, as we come through those verses in Psalm 119, again, we're hearing the value of God's law as the psalmist expresses it to us. The principle that I want us to see this morning, and it's, it's not like a directly flowing out of this text, but it's the same pattern we've been kind of going through in this series. The principle is this. The case laws of the Old Testament serve as specific examples or illustrations of how to apply the moral laws of the Ten Commandments. We often come across these case laws, and we've covered a lot of them. We see things like, don't boil a young goat in its mother's milk. And we say, well, I'm not in any danger of breaking that law. But if we actually understand the purpose of the law and what the principle is there, there are applications of that for us today. Make sure you build a railing around your roof. Well, we're not putting a railing around our roof because we don't have the same kind of roof that the Israelites did. But if you understand the context and you understand why God gave that law, there are applications of that today. Because all of those case laws are tied to moral laws, and the case laws are serving for us as illustrations of how to apply it in real life. So you put a railing around your roof because 
you're not supposed to murder. You're supposed to value human life. That's the principle that's underneath that. And so we have care and concern for human life, and this is one way that we exercise that care and concern. That's the way the case laws function. And there's a particular case law that I want us to look at today. It's one that's actually stated a couple different times in a couple different ways. And it has to do with rebellion against parents. So if you have your Bible, turn to Exodus 21. Exodus chapter 21. This is an application of the fifth commandment, the command to honor your father and mother. And so we're going to see some specific applications of that law in the life of Israel. And then we're going to ask the question, what does that have to do with us today? Is that still relevant for us today? So Exodus 21:15 says this, whoever strikes his father or his mother shall be put to death. Whoever strikes his father or his mother shall be put to death. Now we need to understand the terminology here. What does the word strike mean? And the word means to attack with great force. This is not a slap or a push. This is something like a serious beating or attempted murder. Those are the kinds of things that would be captured by this word, strike. So this is an unusual capital crime because we know the principle that we've seen throughout Scripture is an eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, that kind of thing, a life for a life. And so usually the death penalty comes for something like murder. And when we have assault that doesn't reach the level of murder, we wouldn't normally find a death penalty attached to it. So if we're being good students of the Bible, that should kind of raise our antenna and we say, hmm, what's going on that's different here? Why this penalty for this particular offense? Two verses later, we read in verse 17, whoever curses his father or his mother shall be put to death. So this command is exactly the same as the previous one, but we have the word curses instead of the word strikes. And here the word curse means to make light of or to repudiate. It's the opposite of the word glorify excuse me, glorify. So the word glorify means to make much of or to give weight to. It has, it's the same word as heavy. So this is the opposite of that. This would be a public mocking or dishonoring of parents. Not a joke or a word that's spoken in anger and then repented of. This is a settled public rejection and repudiation of parents. The third passage I have for you, I think, explains a little bit more. So Deuteronomy 21. Turn over a couple of books to Deuteronomy chapter 21. And we're going to look at verses 18 to 21. Deuteronomy 21, verses 18 to 21. This one's a little more detailed. And here's what we read. If a man has a stubborn and rebellious son who will not obey the voice of his father or the voice of his mother, and though they discipline him, will not listen to them, then his father and his mother shall take hold of him and bring him out to the elders of his city at the gate of the place where he lives. And they shall say to the elders of his city, this our son is stubborn and rebellious. He will not obey our voice. He is a glutton and a drunkard. Then all the men of the city shall stone him to death with stones. So you shall purge the evil from your midst 
and all Israel shall hear and fear. So this command is a further explanation, it's a case law, of the ones in Exodus 21, and it ties back to the fifth commandment, the command to honor your father and mother. Now, from the context, you can understand this is clearly an older child, old enough to be a drunkard and a glutton. This son has a settled disposition to rebel. This is not a one-time failing. This is a son that's not out on his own yet. He hasn't started his own household. But he's old enough that he's got this reputation, this pattern that has developed of being a drunkard and a glutton. His parents have been disciplining him. They've been doing what they're supposed to do, but he hasn't responded to the discipline. Now, the parents, notice, do not have the authority to carry out this sentence themselves. They bring him to the elders of the city. They don't have the power to control him. They don't have the authority to execute judgment. And when the elders now take care of the situation, we realize there is a public witness of the behavior of this son. The elders have to base their decision on something. And so we can realize this is probably someone who has a public reputation for this. So we're talking about a pretty extreme situation here. Again, this is unique. We have a capital punishment for what doesn't necessarily seem to be a capital offense. And so we have to ask the question, why, in God's estimation, is this such a serious thing? What's the difference here? And the difference has to do with the significance that God gives to parental authority. Paul points out in Ephesians that the fifth commandment, honor your father and mother, is the first one with a promise that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. So the reason for the commandment to honor and father, uh, honor your father and your mother is that your, your father and your mother, according to God's design, are his representatives to you. God has authority over this son who's rebelling, but he exercises that authority through the parents. They have delegated authority that comes from God, and God takes this very seriously. So honoring your father and mother is honoring God by honoring the authorities that he's put in place over you. So you're also supposed to honor government authorities, judges, elders, other kinds of authorities that you have in life because they are also representatives of God. They are ministers of God for your good. But parents are the first, the primary, and the most significant authority that all of us encounter. Right off the bat, as life begins, this is the authority that you come into this world under. And so God uses this primary authority as the example, this case, of how we should think about authority 
that God is exercising through his human agents in our lives. So dishonoring parents is dishonoring God because they represent him. Now, what happens to a society that doesn't respect authority? In our society, are fathers respected? Are they honored? Turn on your TV and watch, just pick any sitcom, commercial, whatever the case may be, and you will find 98% of it is dishonoring fathers. A society cannot last when it dishonors fathers. This is the primary authority that God has put in place. God has designed the world to be ruled by fathers, ruled well, ruled as a representative of God. But we reject that. And a society that rejects that authority begins to crumble. It begins to disintegrate. And as you see the authorities in our culture today, what is the mindset toward authority? We have become less and less ready to honor authority. We are moving ourselves away from obedience to the fifth commandment. That's one of the reasons that there's such a severe penalty attached to this violation of the law. Because God knows what happens to a community that doesn't honor fathers. So this is, it's an illustration for us of one of the most crucial aspects of authority that God has designed in the world, and he takes it extremely seriously. Now, if we're being honest today, when you read those verses, it seems pretty harsh, doesn't it? Isn't that your natural reaction? It seems too harsh. But that's, again, when we read scripture and we find that we have a problem with something God is saying, the problem is not with the scripture. The problem is with us. And so we need to recognize that we are not taking honoring parents seriously enough. And that also means we're not taking honoring God seriously enough. And so this, this case should kind of draw us up short and say, whoa, what? What's off in my thinking that I think this way? To help us understand this a little better, I want to take you to a place where Jesus applies this law. So turn with me to Mark chapter 7. Mark chapter 7. You'll find this story in a couple of the Gospels, but we're going to read it this morning in Mark. Mark 7, and we're going to read the first 13 verses. And as we do, notice that Jesus... As he applies God's law to the situation, he applies not only the fifth commandment, but also the cases that we've been looking at. Okay? He applies both of them. We need to think about that. So Mark 7, starting in verse 1. Now, when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the traditions of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. 
And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. So that's just, Mark is just saying, there's lots of specific traditions that have developed regarding, you know, cleanliness and things like that, that the Pharisees are very careful to hold to themselves and demand that everyone else holds to as well. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And he said to them, well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Okay, you catch that? What the psalmist said this morning about his soul? We talked about the importance of your heart being there in terms of obedience. That's exactly what Jesus is saying when he's quoting Isaiah. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. And he said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if a man tells his father or his mother, whatever you would have gained from me is Corban, that is given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down. And many such things you do. What is Jesus saying? What's going on in this passage? Well, the background, the cultural background you have to have, what this word Corban means is you could take your possessions and officially designate them as Corban, which means given to God or given to the temple. What that means is then upon your death, your goods would be given to the temple, but until you died, you are allowed to use them for the normal stuff of life for yourself. But what the Pharisees and the scribes were doing was they were saying, you can designate your possessions as Corban given to the temple. And then you can say no to your parents regarding helping them out financially or providing for them or giving them a place to live or something like that. You can keep it for yourself. And so Jesus is saying, you're taking the traditions of men and you're using it in such a way that's actually violating the very law of God. Because God's law says, honor your father and mother. And anyone who reviles father and mother should be put to death. He says, you're, you're twisting what God has said. You're using traditions to get out of having to obey the law. So Jesus here is, is saying what you're doing is specifically a violation of the fifth commandment and it's a violation of the case law in Exodus 21. Notice what Jesus doesn't do. He doesn't say, but you're in luck. I've come and now that law doesn't apply anymore. He doesn't do that. He doesn't abrogate this law. He applies it to the case of the Pharisees and the scribes. He judges them on the basis of this law. This violation of the law is an older child, an adult, and it, it demonstrates a settled disposition of dishonor toward parents. And there's public evidence of it. It fits the kind of categories we saw in those case laws. So what the law, let's talk about what the law is saying and what it's not saying. 
The law is saying the command to honor your parents is still in force today. And this includes financial care when parents are no longer able to do so or physical care for them when they're no longer able to do so. Serving your parents is a way of serving God because honoring your parents is a way of honoring God. Now, what is the law not saying? It's not saying that you can't ever disagree with your parents or confront your parents. When parents are in the wrong, they're not exempt from correction. It doesn't mean that if parents come to live with an adult son or daughter who has established their household, and they, the, the older parents now come to live with that family, that the parents get their way in how the household is run, the older parents. It's not saying that. When a man leaves his father and his mother and he marries, he begins a new household. Older parents should not interfere in the marriage. They shouldn't interfere in how a household is run. Grandparents should not undermine the way the parents are training their children. And if that happens as a settled disposition, then the older parents are dishonoring the younger parents. That actually might be good cause to have those older parents leave. In other words, the parents claim to honor is not absolute because we always honor God first. And if those two come into conflict, we honor God rather than men. It also doesn't give older parents the right to be lazy, to just come and sit and not contribute to the household if they have that ability. It doesn't give them the right to ignore household rules. So if your household rules are everybody in this house attends church on Sunday, when older parents come into the home, that's what they should do too. And if they're not, and that's an undermining of your parental authority, then that could be a reason to not have them in your home. The claim is not absolute. Okay? We have to kind of take all those laws that God gives, all those principles, and fit them together in the priorities that God has given. And honoring him comes first. But I do think that if we rightly understand this, it does confront us a little bit today. One of the primary ways is this. Sending your parents to a nursing home should not be the norm. I know that that's a controversial thing to say, but it should not be the norm. I'm not saying there's never a time and place for it. Okay? But remember the law regarding inheritances. The oldest son receives a double portion. Why? Because he also has the responsibility to care for the parents. And if he isn't the one to do so, then that double portion should go to someone else that does take on that responsibility. Now, there are definitely times when it's necessary, maybe for medical reasons, it's necessary for parents to be put in a place where they can receive that kind of care that the, the younger generation can't provide for them. But the general pattern should be that children care for their parents as they get older. Young people that are here this morning. What this means for you is you should be developing now the habits and patterns of honoring your parents. It should become second nature to you because honoring your parents is honoring God. It also means this, caring for our parents should be seen as a legitimate form of ministry. So sometimes we get real kind of worked up about 
whether or not somebody was at every different church activity or something like that. If somebody's like not able to do all the stuff because they're caring for their parents, that should not be viewed as some kind of failing because that's legitimate ministry. That's carrying out God-given responsibilities. We need to make room for that kind of thing. It's just as honoring to God as a lot of spiritual activities. I, I, I want to kind of wrap this up by pointing us to Christ as an example. Okay, so I want you to think with me about Jesus and his parents. Did Jesus honor his parents? When we say Jesus' parents, it's a little bit complicated because Jesus has a heavenly father, he has an earthly father, and an earthly mother. So let's start with the heavenly father. Did Jesus honor his heavenly father? John 6, Jesus says, I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And in John 17, he says to the Father, I have glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. Now listen to that. He was obedient and he honored his Father. He did what his Father sent him to do and he glorified him. He honored him. Jesus honored his heavenly Father. What about his earthly parents? Well, you remember the story when Jesus is 12, they come to Jerusalem for the feast and Jesus, you know, the, the whole caravan starts heading back to Nazareth and Jesus stays in the temple and he's asking questions and having conversations with the religious leaders there and his parents finally realize he's not with us. They go back to Jerusalem, they find him. After that whole story comes to a conclusion, here's what we read in Luke chapter 2, verse 51. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. Jesus obeyed his parents. He was submissive to them. He honored them. And then we get the absolute prime example of this when Jesus is on the cross. As Jesus hung on the cross, there are seven things that scripture records for us that Jesus said. Now remember, crucifixion is death by asphyxiation. So every breath is precious. Talking is extremely painful. You're only going to say the most important things. But of all the things that Jesus could have said, one of the seven short sayings was when he spoke to John the disciple and to his own mother, Mary. John 19, we read, When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. And he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. Jesus was the oldest son. So the responsibility to care for his mother fell on him. And here, he's dying he passes that responsibility on to John. And it's striking that of all the things that Jesus had on his mind in that moment. Now remember, he has the weight of the penalty of my sin and yours, the sins of all of his people, resting on him at that moment. And one of the things that he still is focused on, one of his primary concerns is the very earthly, practical concern of caring for his mother.
honoring her by seeing that she was cared for. My opinion is that if we, as the church, thought this way about the authority of parents and about honoring them, that when we're younger, younger children and teens honored and obeyed their parents in the way that we see in scripture, and that as we move into adulthood, if we honored our parents by caring for them, if, if it became a noticeable trend that church people seem to be inviting their parents into their own home and caring for them, if that was what we were characterized by, I think that would contribute greatly to us being a light, being a city on a hill, a light to the nations. I think that would be a great witness and testimony to who our God is. It's countercultural. But may we be different than the world. May we honor God by honoring our parents. Let's pray. Lord, again, as we turn to your word, we realize that your law is just full of wisdom for us. And a lot of times it's wisdom that draws us up short and helps us to see, you know what? We're not thinking rightly. We're not thinking the way that God has designed. And so this may be one of those areas this morning. I pray that you would help us to develop thinking that aligns with your mind. Your law is wonderful. It teaches us who you are. This morning, as we look at this command about honoring parents, we recognize that honoring parents is a way of honoring you. It's not, a, it's not an absolute. We recognize there are lots of ways that we need to be careful not to, not to um, maybe reinforce or encourage parents when they're in the wrong. And there's going to be certain times where we can't, we, we, we really just can't care for parents even the way that we would want to, whether that's financially or medically or whatever the case may be. And so I don't want um, this, this message this morning to be a message that lays guilt on people because there are going to be times where being faithful to you is not going to look the same as it does for other people. But I pray that you would give us hearts that are at least willing to ask how it is that we should be honoring our parents. Give us discernment about the particular situation we find ourselves in and how it is that we can honor you by honoring them. And we pray these this morning in Jesus' name. Amen.